I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be picking up this morning where we left off last week. And I have to confess that I, I have this, all week I've had this sense of weight of the words that I'm about to share with you today and next week. And each week, if I don't ever come up here and have a little bit of nervousness of the words that I'm sharing, I'm probably relying on myself a little bit too much. And uh, this week especially with the words that I want to share with you as we begin this week and next week to define and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, to be quite honest, I'm a little bit nervous because there are things that you and I have heard for years that have been said, well, this is what the gospel is. And at the end of the day, they really don't reflect the true gospel. And, and so I'm nervous because I know that it can easily upset the apple cart, so to speak. It can easily maybe challenge the things that we have heard for years that the gospel is. And as we begin to discover right from the, the source of the scriptures, right from the source of the gospel, define what the gospel is, that can be challenging for us because it can stir right down to the fabric of who we are. Um, last week, we talked about a crisis that exists in Christianity, and, and particularly, I want to isolate it, and I want to identify it as particularly in American Christianity. We, we have this crisis, and this crisis is understanding what is the gospel, and maybe asking the question as we're going to talk today, what is, what is not the gospel? If, if the gospel is really the heart of Christianity, and hopefully as we discovered last week, we all at least are hopefully on the same platform that the gospel is the heart of Christianity. Because without the gospel, you can't believe in Jesus Christ. The scriptures say, how can people believe unless they've heard? And how can people hear unless somebody has been sent? And so someone at one time or another had to present the gospel message to you, and you had to at some degree receive that gospel message, and then your life was transformed out of the, the, the chains and the darkness of the prince of this world, which is Satan, and translated in your life, changed in, in and changed into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. You see, there's, there's these challenges that we have to overcome as, as Christians and particularly as American Christians because some of us have grown up in tr tremendous families. And so, so we have a more difficult time maybe understanding exactly when that one specific moment that we trusted Jesus Christ, but there was a moment. There, there was a moment that each of us, if we're, if we're Christ followers, that we were headed and destined to hell, and then we had to be changed by the glorious gospel, by the power of God that draws us to salvation. For each of us, we have to have a defining moment, so to speak. And then the challenge becomes, can we clearly define the power of whatever it was that changed our lives? Because if our lives have been changed for all of eternity, for this lifetime and, 
and the life after we die, because there is life after death, if, if, if our lives have been changed by something so powerful and so transcendent, wouldn't it make sense that you and I would want to know what that is? And particularly, wouldn't it make sense that we would want to be able to clearly talk about it and clearly put our finger on it and to identify it? And so, we talked last week about the difficulty of what I call the gospel crisis, trying to work through and define what the gospel really is. And it would really be easy, quite honestly, for me to continue to rail on today about the challenges and the problems and all the things that are going on, but that doesn't lead us towards a solution. So, I want to take us towards defining and defending the gospel today and, and, and next week. Really, those two ideas are inseparable. Defining the gospel and defending the gospel. Just clearly by defining and saying what the gospel is, you're also saying what it is not. And by saying what it is not and also pointing that out when, when people hear something that is not clearly the gospel, if we say that's not the gospel, then we're also helping people hopefully to define what the gospel is. We can't properly and clearly say what the gospel is without saying what it is not. And so today and next week, we're going to define what the gospel is and what it is not. And I would also throw this out to you, that there are going to be some thoughts that you're going to hear this week and next week that you and I have heard that this is the gospel that really doesn't clearly articulate the gospel. You're your and my ideas of what the gospel is is going to be challenged and stretched, I think, over the next couple of weeks. And so, can I, can I just invite you that if you hear something that you're like, whoa, that sounds almost on the edge of heretical. That sounds, that sounds like something completely different than what I've heard or what I've grown up with. Can, can I just challenge you? I have shared that same tension with you. I've shared that same concern and that same challenge with you, and I have, I have weighed my words as carefully as I can to present the, the next couple of weeks to you. And I believe that the things that are going to be presented clearly, clearly represent the gospel message as we see it directly from the Scriptures, not as handed down from tradition, not as handed down from a particular denomination, not as handed down from, from little different uh, tracks that you and I might be familiar with, but rather clearly the gospel as it's presented from the Scriptures. And so, I would invite you to, to learn, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps relearn again, or perhaps be reaffirmed in what the gospel truly, truly is as we discover some basic ideas from the Scriptures. I, I have a handout, and I have this habit, in case you're unfamiliar with my habits, um, I have a, ha uh, a handout that's stuck inside of your, your um, bulletin. Hopefully, you got one of those if you want to follow along this morning. Ospo, I just want to throw this out to you. There's a cliche that I'm going to talk about today, and I expand a little bit further on this cliche 
on the back uh, of the handout, which is under the section of table talk, and I give quite a few scriptures that challenge one of the cliches that you and I have, have heard about, and maybe you and I, and I know I have, uh, shared that this is what the gospel is. And so, I just want to throw that out there to you that if you're hearing something today that might be a little bit challenged, maybe do a little bit more investigation before you just really want to throw me out of the pulpit and say, let's look and see what the Scriptures have to, to say about those things. And so, I invite you to follow along this morning with me. The first thing I really want to talk about is the gospel itself and the word gospel. If I can just get to the first thing as we define and defend the gospel, the word gospel. In the Greek, the word is euangelion, euangelion. And that word just simply means good news. Now, that word has quite a bit of baggage for us today, but it also had baggage even for first century Christians because the word euangelion was not uh, used originally in the Bible. It wasn't used originally to describe anything about the Christian world or even the Jewish world. It was used in the Roman world. So, as we're talking about the gospel, really we're talking about the good news of something. So, we need to define what that something is. And in its original usage, as I mentioned, it has nothing to do with the Bible or Christianity. In fact, euangelion was good news that was delivered to Roman citizens regarding the cult worship of the Roman emperor. Some of you who traveled with me to Israel this, this past year, we, we were able to go to some different places. In fact, Caesarea Philippi was one of those places that they had a temple there, and that temple was designed for cultic worship to worship the emperor of Rome. And that was throughout all kinds of, of Roman uh, cities throughout the Roman Empire. You, you see, the Roman emperors believed that they were gods, and they wanted people to worship them as gods. And so, they actually made temples inside of Roman cities that, that uh, the, these emperors would be worshipped. And once in a while, there would come a herald or there would come a messenger from Rome, and they would bring to this temple this euangelion. They would bring good news. And the good news was in relation to something that happened to the emperor. Uh, for example, just to give you an example, um, if the emperor had a, a, a baby boy, they would deliver euangelion. They would deliver good news to the temples throughout the Roman Empire, and that the people who were worshiping in those temples would receive good news of the Roman emperor. Good news! The emperor has born a son, or later in the life of that son, good news, the, the emperor's son has ascended to the throne. Good news, there is a, is a new emperor in Rome. That was Euangelion. And Christians adopted that word to use it as good news, but good news to refer to something coming from someone much more important than the emperor, particularly the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God Almighty. In the New Testament, 
we see that this word takes on a new and more important meaning in the New Testament. The euangelion, or the gospel, or the good news, refers to the good news that comes from God. So when you and I refer to the gospel, we're referring to euangelion, or we're referring to good news that comes from God Almighty. In fact, that's what we're going to read this morning. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes that there is the gospel of God. It's the good news that comes from and belongs to God. At other times in, the, in the, his letters, he'll refer it to as, as my gospel because he was the recipient of that gospel. And in the same way, by the way, you and I are the recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, the word that you and I are perhaps familiar with, or have at least heard of, evangelical. Have you ever heard the word evangelical? It comes from the same Greek word, euangelion. Evangelical means that we focus on delivering the gospel. We focus on delivering the good news. And unfortunately, there's many evangelical movements out there that have not been evangelical, and neither have they really focused on the gospel. They're evangelical only in name. By the way, that is pretty tragic to the Christian church because it gives the Christian church a pretty bad name at times. The word is used, by the way, the word gospel or euangelion is only used a few times, which might be a little bit surprising, in what we call the four gospels. Do you remember the four gospels in your Bible in the New Testament? The four gospels are what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you might be surprised to discover that the word euangelion appears only a few times in the gospels. In fact, in the book of Matthew, Matthew quotes the, the Old Testament 128 times, but the word euangelion is used in there only five times. In 28 chapters of Matthew, the gospel or the word gospel is only used five times. Mark uses the word gospel more than any other gospel writer in only 16 chapters. He uses the word gospel eight times. Luke doesn't use the word gospel at all. In fact, he only uses the verb form of euangelion and not the noun form. The gospel of John. We call it the gospel of John. You know how many times euangelion or the word gospel is used in John? Zero. So, what does that mean? Does it mean that you have to use the word gospel to deliver or present the gospel? Obviously not, because we have for centuries called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John what? The gospels, because they deliver the good news of God. The Acts of the Apostles, you and I call it oftentimes the book of Acts, more properly, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It only uses the word in its noun form twice. And that's all about the, the life of the early church. In the life of the early church, 
the word gospel was hardly ever used. Do you know why it was hardly ever used? Because oftentimes when people heard the word euangelion, what do you think that they thought of? Cultic worship of the emperor. Because that was common during their time. The Apostle Paul in his letters, by the way, the Apostle Paul gave to us a third of the New Testament. So, the Apostle Paul uses this word gospel, euangelion, in its cultic form and also in its Christian form, and he uses it more than any other writer of the New Testament, 60 times. 60 times the Apostle Paul uses the word gospel, and most of those, by the way, are found in the book of Romans. Most of those usages are found in the book of Romans. All of this means that you don't have to use the word gospel to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to sit someone down and say, hold on, I'm going to deliver to you the gospel. And I've got to use the word gospel because if I don't use the word gospel, then I haven't delivered the gospel to you. Don't, don't think that you have to do that. On the other side of the coin, the appearances of the word gospel definitely helps us define what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. So, for the rest of the series, we're actually going to study out of the book of Romans, and it's going to be such a small, small portion of the book of Romans that we're going to study. We're going to look from the book of Romans to define what the gospel is and what it isn't, how you deliver the gospel, and the impact that it should have for our lives. Let me kind of tell you a little bit about today's text before you, we get into the text, uh, a little bit about the book of Romans. The, the book of Romans is the longest and most systematic letter that Paul wrote. It's the longest of Paul's letters. It's the most systematic letter. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I really like Romans. It's been called oftentimes the queen of Paul's letters because he systematically and clearly delivers not only what the gospel is, but then he tells us that if you've truly been a recipient of the gospel of God, this is what's going to happen in your life. And if this isn't happening in your life, then you haven't truly been a recipient of the gospel of God. And he does it in such a, a, a brilliant and systematic and understandable way. He's, he's writing to Christians in Rome. And by the way, he has never been to Rome. He's writing from the city of Ephesus. He's wanted to go to Rome quite a few times, uh, by the way, by the time that he writes this. And he knows an awful lot of Christians who live in Rome. It's because in, in Paul's journey, he, he writes this in his third missionary journey, towards the end of his third missionary journey, before he's going to head back to Jerusalem. And and he, uh, he writes this letter, and he, through all of his, his journeys, he's met a lot of people who have now moved to Rome. And so, at the end of the book, you're going to see all kinds of greetings that Paul gives, and you might say, well, wait a second, he's never been to Rome. How in the world does he know all these people? It's because the people that he knew from his travels have now moved to Rome. As Christian persecution has continued to increase, it's interesting that Rome was one of the safer places to live. excuse me, not from Ephesus, he writes from Corinth. Sorry about that. He writes the letter from Corinth. 
You know what his purpose in writing is? Let me define the purpose in writing to the Roman Christians. This is so helpful for our study. You know what he wants to do for the Roman Christians? He wants to clearly define the gospel of God. He wants to clearly define it, and in defining it, he's also defending it. He's telling, he's telling the Roman Christians this is what the gospel is, and this is what the gospel is not. And then he says, by the way, if you've been a recipient of the gospel, the implication and the impact of trusting the gospel looks like this. That's what the letter is. If you're going to truly trust God as is, is the gospel demands, then this is going to be the implication. This is what your life will look like. This is what your new life in Christ will be. So, with all that background, let me invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at 17 verses, and we're only going to get through a couple of them. It's, it's unfortunate <clears throat> that we, we always have limited times each time that we gather together to do these studies. And this, this book is packed. It, it, it's pregnant with so much, so much truth, so many fascinating details about the Christian life and things to help us better understand the Scriptures. Now, listen, I'm going to throw up on the screen the English Standard Version, but if you have your Bible with you, can I personally encourage you to look out of your own Bible just for the sake of continuing to, to study out of your own Bible. By the way, I hope that you not only study your Bible on Sunday morning here with us, but I also hope that you make that a regular habit throughout your weeks, and I hopefully uh, provide each week some, some things that will spur you on towards that with the table talk. That's kind of the purpose behind that. But if you don't have the Bible with you, it's up here on the screen. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Remember, we've talked, if you've, if you've been here at Praise Point for any period of time, hopefully you recognize immediately that the word Christ is the Greek word that's oftentimes used in the Hebrew as Messiah. Messiah Jesus, the promised one, the one that was foretold all the way back in Genesis, by the way. Genesis begins the gospel of God. Christ, the Messiah, called to be an apostle. By the way, the word apostle is not a churchy word either. Imagine that. There's all kinds of words in our Bible that aren't churchy words, but we've kind of put them as churchy words. Uh, apostle just simply means sent one. And there were, during the ancient times, during the Roman times, there were apostolic ships. Apostolic ships are not ships that carried apostles. Apostolic ships it were ships that were cargo ships that held something that was to be sent to some uh, other distant foreign land. That was, that was the purpose of these apostolic ships. They're sent ones, that they're delivering something that's of use and of value, and that's the same idea with an apostle. They're sent with the purpose of delivering something that's of use and of value, set apart for the gospel of God. By the way, in, in the uh, Greek, this, these words in the English, set apart, is where we have our word Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees in the Gospels that you read about in the New Testament? The, the Pharisee was one who was de, uh, 
to, to be set apart. And if you know anything about the apostle Paul's life, you know that he was a Pharisee. In fact, he calls himself a Pharisee among Pharisees because of how zealous he was for Judaism until God changed him on that Damascus Road experience. And so what he's saying here is, I am a Pharisee, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. By the way, the gospel of God tells us whom to whom the gospel belongs. The good news is from, in origins from, God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and through the Holy Scriptures. In other words, Jesus Christ in this gospel that God has now delivered to us in our current present time has been prophesied throughout all generations of the Holy Scriptures. Our Bible, every 66 book of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, focus on one glorious, amazing thing, the gospel, the good news that comes from God delivered to us so that we might be recipients of God's good, glorious news. Concerning His Son, notice that it's capitalized there referring to Jesus, who is descended from David according to the flesh, by the way, that shows that Jesus had every right to be the king of the Jews because he was in the royal lineage and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, God confirmed Jesus' divinity when God resurrected Jesus from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord our Lord. He, he is our master. By the way, the truth of the matter is, as we're going to define and, and, and defend throughout the, the next couple of weeks, is you can put the people of this world who have ever lived, are living today, or ever will live, you can put them into two simple categories. Either they belong to God, they're slaves to this world, as the Scriptures tell us, or they're slaves to Christ. You are either belonging to God or you're belonging to the prince of this world, to Satan. Not only do you belong, but as the Scriptures tell us, you are a slave. You're either a slave to Satan or you're a slave to Christ, who's declared to be the Son of God and the power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. In other words, we've received this grace of the good news. We've received the grace and the benefits and, and the recipients of salvation and the apostleship. In other words, we're to be sent out to bring about, listen to these words, the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all generations, or among all nations, excuse me, among all nations. You might want to underline that in your Bible. The obedience of faith, including you, by the way, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are called into obedience, not disobedience. You cannot come to Jesus Christ and do whatever you want. 
You cannot come to Jesus on your own terms. That is so American today. People want to come to Jesus, but they want it to be on their own terms. They want to live their own life like they want to live it, and they want the benefit of eternity too. Can't have it. You have to live your life according to the desires and the will and the plan of God. You see, people are wanting the richness of God's salvation. They're wanting all the benefits of God's salvation, but they don't want the price of God's salvation. First, in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, or maybe this would better help you understand it, in all the known world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In other words, I've wanted to come to you so much. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. In other words, I want to be able to be a partaker in delivering the glorious gospel and seeing people come to Jesus Christ and and turn from their sins and follow Him to the glory of Jesus. He wants to see that, he wants to be a part of that in Rome himself, but up to this point, he hasn't been able to write, or been able to go. That's why he's writing the letter. He says, verse 14, I'm under no obligation, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verses 16 to 17, amazing stuff for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You need to underline this. You need to somehow know this. For the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We could spend a month, perhaps, unpacking 17 verses, but I doubt if you want me to do that. So, we need to glean as quickly and as easily as we can from this Scripture a few truths about the gospel and a few truths that will help us to define and defend the gospel. We're also going to move forward in the next couple weeks with a couple different texts, but let me, let me kind of help a couple things. God's gospel is the good news of God's redemptive work for humanity. By the way, God's gospel, God's salvation is so powerful, not only is is humanity a beneficiary of the good news and the work of Jesus Christ, but all of the created order is a beneficiary of the good news of Jesus Christ. The birds of the air, the animals of the land, the fish of the sea, the grass that has all those dandelions that we want to get out, are beneficiaries 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I, the pinnacle of God's creation, are the primary beneficiaries. We are the apple of God's eye. We are the beneficiaries of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. You and I have the opportunity to receive the good news of salvation. In fact, that's what I want to kind of put it in different terms, in terms that you and I perhaps are more familiar with, or or to use churchy terms. It's the good news of salvation. So why has the good news of redemption been terribly misunderstood as we've already established last week? Now here's where today might get a little bit tough. Because so many people don't know how God has saved us. We don't we don't know we don't know what God did to save us. Not only do we not know what God did to save us, what that, that tremendous cost was, but then we can't, we can't tell others because we don't know ourselves. How can you tell somebody that which you don't know? That's why it's so crucial that you and I clearly know what the gospel is and what it is not. Let me clearly, sometimes it's easier to, to define what the, something is by defining what it is not. Have you ever been there well, I know that it isn't this, and I know that it isn't this, and I know that it isn't this. Let me kind of give you some of the things that the gospel is not. And by the way, these are some things that might be a little bit hard for us. Listen, is everybody listening? The gospel is not God loves you. Whoa. God loves you. God loves us all. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. That might be true, but that statement does not represent the gospel. The gospel is not, by the way, believing that Jesus was a real person. The gospel, let let me even take it further. The gospel is not even believing that Jesus was the Son of God. Because we're told in the book of James that even the demons believe this. And do you know what the book of James says? What does James say? The the demons believe and yet they tremble. The gospel is not believing that Jesus was a historical figure. The gospel is not believing that Jesus was real or, yeah, I know who Jesus is. Oh, yeah, I I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not the gospel. By the way, the gospel is not praying a prayer or pray after me. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not a magical mantra that somehow you magically invoke the right words and suddenly poof, Listen to this. I fear and tremble in making this statement, but yet I know it's true. I'd encourage you, 
if this sounds very tough to you, to read the table talk that's on the back of your handout. The gospel is not asking Jesus into your heart. Whoa. That's not the gospel. You never see that phrase at all in the Bible. Do you know where that phrase comes from? It comes from the evangelical world that for decades has used that. And the idea has a little bit of biblical background. The idea is there, but not the way that it's used in the delivery of it. By the way, the gospel is not changing your mind. You don't gain salvation like you gain a New Year's resolution. Well, I'm just going to resolve to do this. That's not how we gain salvation. Salvation is gained through such a much more magnificent, glorious, supernatural change that God Himself brings about in our heart. And at times, what we have done is we have minimalized it and minimized it, and we've made it something, well, anybody can do just do that. The gospel is not Jesus wants to meet your needs. By the way, this idea is much more pagan than it is Christian. Especially in such a consumer culture that we live in today, if we present the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that God is this magical vending machine that if you pull the right cord, then you get the right product. That's not what the gospel is. Yet, I could tell you, I could list for you the number of TV ministers that I can sit and listen to and say, all you need to do is you need to pray this way and you'll get this blessing. It's nowhere in the Scriptures. The gospel is not Jesus gives you peace. That's not the gospel. Peace is a product of receiving salvation. We don't sell the gospel based on us getting peace. Here's another one, my last one. I've saved this one for last because this one might even be most challenging. Repentance is not the gospel. We repent as a response to what God does in us through the power of the gospel. Now listen, you cannot truly follow God, trust God, believe God, whatever word you want to throw in there, without repentance. If there is no repentance, there is no salvation. But repentance being sold by itself is not the gospel. You see, here's, here's the truth of this. True repentance can't be done on our own power. People can't repent of their sins based on their own power and self-will. If we could, then we'd be saved by works. 
You see, God has to do something supernaturally on the inside of us, inside of our hearts, to produce the power of God through salvation to give us the ability to supernaturally repent. True repentance is given to us by God as a gift. You don't believe me? Go back to our Sermon on the Mount series and look at the Beatitudes. Jesus himself taught this same stuff in the character of the Beatitudes. The product of all of these ideas as they're being tossed out there in the evangelical world is an insufficient gospel presentation. It's an insufficient, it's incomplete. And what happens with an incomplete or an insufficient gospel presentation is it produces insufficient responses to God for salvation. Can I just ask you a couple things and give you a couple examples? How many of you have known somebody who has prayed a prayer, but yet they've prayed a prayer, and then their life has no follow-up of the evidence of the character of true change? Or how how many of you have ever known somebody who professes or they self-identify to be a Christian, and their life has no evidence of what we see directly in the Scriptures of a Christian would live like? They're products of insufficient gospel presentations. And what has happened is is we've become our own worst enemy at times to where the church has produced what I would call false converts. All you need to do is pray after me and you're converted. That's not the gospel. That's not how we're changed. We're changed by God himself. Do do you remember, do you remember Peter, Caesarea Philippi, some of you went with me to Israel, you might remember this because it's a powerful moment. Jesus takes his disciples on a three-day walk north of Galilee. You know what his agenda is? One single question. One single question, because Caesarea Philippi is the place where people went in the ancient world to declare who their God was. He takes his disciples there and he says, who do you say that I am? Well, they give all kinds of things that, you know, other people are saying that he is. But then he says, no, 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 who do you say that I am? And then we call this, in fact, oftentimes our editors have put it in Matthew chapter 18 as they they say Peter's confession, right? Peter's confession is, you are the Messiah. And do you know what his response is? Jesus' response to Peter is, do you you remember? Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. True salvation comes from a supernatural revelation specifically given to each of us individually by the power of God. And what happens is it changes us. You cannot help but change because you are now, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You can't help but change. Why? Because you're new. 
And I think what has caused so much confusion in the Christian world is that we, we see these insufficient presentations of the gospel, we hear them, and then you and I probably know them, and we could probably put them on names on our fingers and on our hands of people who have said, oh, I'm a Christian, but their life has no power and no evidence of change. It's because they haven't been changed. Because real change is supernatural. Real change is a gift of God. That's, by the way, why we're told in the scriptures over and over and over and over that faith is what a, a what of God. It's a gift of God. What ends up happening, people have prayed a prayer at one time because they've been told that's what they need to, be, to do in order to be saved, and now their lives are far from God. What ends up happening is have you ever met somebody who's prayed that prayer 15 times? Over and over and over and over. Oh, this time it's really going to take? Why wasn't there any real lasting fruit? Well, do you remember the parable of the soils? Oftentimes in our Bible it's called the parable of the sower, but it's really more of the parable of the soils. And that's in, in Matthew chapter 13, also in Luke chapter 8. Do you remember there's four different soils? Do you guys remember that? We already taught on this uh, some time ago. There's the, the seed, which is the gospel being delivered, and the recipient is the, the person who's along the path. That they 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 don't even have a chance to gobble up the seed because Satan or the crows or the birds of the air come and they steal it and they pluck it away. Well, then there's the seed, the gospel message that falls along the rocky soil. It's, it's, it's shallow as a result of all the, all the rocks. And so they may initially receive it and then, yay, they're all excited about it. And then the root can't go down deep because it's in long rocky soil. And then they, they become submarines. And where did they go? Because it seemed like they received the message so clearly. Or there's, there's the thorny soil, the gospel that falls along the thorny soil. And what ends up happening is they initially receive the word with joy. Go back and re- this is Jesus' own teaching about the gospel and how it's received. And, and what happens is it comes up and then the cares of the world choke it up and it dies. And then you only have one out of four soils that's a good soil. And what ends up happening is it produces a crop 30, 60, and 100 times. You see the fruit. You might say, well, which, which one of those soils really represents the Christian? Only one of them. Only one of four. Because there wasn't any real lasting change. Because do you remember Jesus says, if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will, what's it say? Bear, bear much fruit. Christians bear fruit. Why? Because we're still in the vine. How do you bear fruit? Not by your own power. By the power of God. Because we're attached to the vine. The vine is what gives us life. Christ is what gives us life. Or how about this? Have we seen people who've walked down an aisle, prayed at an altar, but we say, where are they? They seem so genuine. The emotional moment caught 
them? Well, they might be one of the four soils. Well, they've got to be one of the four soils. The cares of the world choked them up, or maybe they received it, and they were the shallow soil. They've fallen away, and the Bible calls them apostate. Why? Because they're not pursuing God. Salvation is a continual pursuit of God, a continual, lifelong pursuit of God. Listen, can I wrap up with just a couple quick things? Salvation is not a change based on a deep conviction. Salvation is not a change based on a deep conviction. You see, what that does is that puts salvation back in our court. And if we read the scriptures, we discover that salvation is given to us and supernaturally revealed to us, and we're justified by faith, not by works, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is not a deep conviction. If it's just a deep conviction, it will not change you. Salvation is a supernatural work of God in the life of a human in response to God's gospel. Salvation is a supernatural work of God Himself in the life of a human in response to God's glorious gospel. In fact, that's how the Apostle Paul oftentimes talks about the gospel, as he talks about it as the glorious gospel. Have you ever wondered this? Why does there seem to be so little power, supernatural power, in the lives of some people who self-identify themselves as Christians? Could, could I throw something out there? It could be that they're just playing the religious game. No, oh, we know that that never happens, right? The reason they're playing the religious game, quite honestly, that's what they've been taught and that's what they've seen modeled. I'm fearful that more Christians have seen fraudulent responses to the gospel than they've seen genuine responses to the gospel. Because genuine responses to the gospel changes us and is supernatural by its very nature and transforms us. Yet the terrible outcome is that so many people self-identify themselves as Christians and that they're deceived. And their deception will lead to eternal damnation. Now, just in case you think that I'm getting a little dramatic, thinking that, okay, Brad, you're going off the deep edge. We, we kind of get what you're saying, but you're being just melodramatic. Well, let me give you some words of Jesus that probably you've heard if you've been here at Praise Point for any period of time because we did 30 weeks on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says these words as He's finishing the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, there's people out there who are saying that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus will say when they appear before me, I'm going to say, hey, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know why? Let me kind of give you the rest of Jesus' teachings. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, on the day of judgment, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Or do many mighty works in your name? And I could just imagine others saying, didn't we go to church? And didn't we do this? And didn't we do this? And didn't we help with this event at church? And didn't we help with this event at church? And didn't we give our money for this? And and they're going to list all these works. And you know what Jesus is going to say to them? Look at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 7, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not I forgot about you. Oh, I'm so glad you reminded me of that. I, I, I had forgotten about that. Well, based on that, come on in. His words say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is what is at stake with the gospel. That's what's at stake for you and I to clearly define and defend what the gospel is and what it isn't. Eternity is at risk here. And you and I have friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors who are going to hell in a handbasket because they haven't heard or haven't believed the gospel. So we need to proclaim it. We need to know it. We need to live in the power of God's glorious gospel because that's the only way to live as a Christian, saturated by the gospel of God. So let me leave you with, I usually give you three take-homes, but I only want to give you one today. And where I leave you today is where we will pick up again next week. The gospel formula, and you know, this probably isn't even the fairest way to call this. Maybe the best thing to call this is the response to a true gospel, and we haven't even defined today, we haven't had time to define today exactly what this gospel is. We've talked about responses to the gospel and how to identify what the gospel is not, but let me show you, let me just, let me not leave you abandoned and just kind of hanging out there. True response to the gospel of God looks like this. Number one, we call people to believe. We indiscriminately, regularly preach the gospel. And we call people to believe. We call people to believe and not only believe, but as a response to that belief, trust and repentance. You see, I think people today are confusing this word, uh, the Greek word. We'll talk more about this next week. The word believe in our New Testament is not how you and I oftentimes think of the word believe today. If we talk about something, we say, oh, believe me, that when you turn the key in the car, that your car is going to turn on. At least it should, right? Unless you have a dead battery or something's wrong with the car. Belief 
and the way that it's mentioned in the Scriptures, really the essence of belief is what? Trust. An absolute trust, which leads to, by the way, the second thing, obedience. Both are necessary components. And by the way, every time you see the gospel presented in the scriptures, you see these two things. You see a call for people to believe, and you see a teaching of people to obey. Do you remember what we call the Great Commission? Let me kind of leave you with this today. Do you remember what we call the, the Great Commission? The Great Commission is at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, in all the world. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to preach. You're supposed to call people to believe. And then, you know what the second component, the inseparable component of that is? Teach them to obey all things that I have commanded you. A person who is a truly converted Christian, a genuine, real Christian, they will believe and trust God, and that trust leads to obedience. Does that make sense? Those are identifying marks of a recipient of the true gospel of Jesus Christ.